you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 146 of the Lone Gummin Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Clark. And I'm back, and my buddy Bart is back, and we got another treat for you. Hey, hey, from Dealey Plaza, UK. Bart, what's happening, man? I'm good, thank you very much. Um, Thank you for having me. We've had a very good uh, weekend, last weekend, on the 28th and the 29th of April. We had our 16th, if I'm not mistaken, um, seminar in Canterbury, which is uh, southeast below London. And uh, we have been doing it at Christchurch University. Uh, This university has some really good uh, facilities for uh, seminars like what we do. Uh, Very good audio facilities and video as well. And, uh, yeah, it's just a pleasure. Uh, last year, I was only there for a day. Um, the year before that, I did a two-hour talk. And this year, I did a two-hour talk um, just on the interrogations of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. And on top of that, I, I split that in two with um, the first hour, which was just before the liquid lunch. Um, yeah, it was a liquid lunch. Um, it's always good. The first, yeah, it was always good. Um, the um, the first hour was about the participants of uh, the DPT, um, Secret Service, FBI, ATF, and uh, Harry Dean Holmes of the USPS, and so forth. For all the people that were actually um, there while Oswald was either being transported um, or uh, interrogated as such. Um, that was quite a tough thing to do to cram all that in an hour, and uh, I had to keep it relatively basic and the second half i did uh, which, which was after lunch and um which was after uh which was about the legal aspect of the whole thing um did oswald get legal representation why did he not get legal representation did he ask for a lawyer did he say he was innocent this that and the other blah 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 and i made an attempt on putting it all together um not chronologically i will do that but um the uh the material that I showed was uh, mostly videos from Oswald in the corridor and what he was saying during the press conference. And, of course, I also showed uh, uh, different versions from different uh, news 
broadcasting companies because they all have their own uh, material uh, or actually acquire different material as such. So it's good. I mean, that's one of the positive things about that whole thing uh, uh, inside uh, the DPD. There is there is quite a lot of footage and photography available about Oswald being um, going through the corridors with uh, the DPD and the uh, Secret Service and FBI guys in tow and so forth. So, um, yeah, this, it was just fun to do. Uh, I didn't do anything last year. I wanted a break. And uh, I did this one because I released uh, last year in September uh, the first version of Oswald's Interrogations, which is clocked at, I think, about 308 pages. And at this point, I've got about 300 and 94 pages ready and I'm going to be over 400 because I'm still expecting stuff and once I've got that which probably is going to be about a couple of months I'm going to release the second version and I've already got more leads but they're going to take longer so later this year there will be a another version coming out and then uh, we'll see I'm going to start probably start making some movies as well like I did with the Prayer Man movie. They're going to be like short clips. And I said that already about the second floor lunchroom encounter. But I've um, I've waited uh, a year. And I'm going to start working on those probably next month. And then slowly they'll be uh, being released in about like 15 or 20 minutes segments. And there'll be like four or five movies of, of each quarter. Uh, the first quarter is, of course, the uh, second floor lunchroom encounter. The second is the uh, Oswald's Interrogations. The third one will be the Texas School Book Depository, which is also a paper I've already started to work on, which is already 200 pages long, without having written one piece of text, practically. It's just the documentation and pictures, so that's already 200 pages. And um, the fourth one is, of course, going to be on Prayer Man, uh, which I've started a little bit on, but not, not, not really much. But I don't expect to start on that until next year. So, um, yeah, so the... Um, on that same day, I also interviewed Malcolm Blunt. Um, Malcolm Blunt, I interviewed two years ago as well, and um, probably the listeners will remember because you shared the audio of that particular interview uh, back then. And, uh, well, he's a really easy guy to uh, talk to. He's not somebody who actually um, likes to be in the spotlight and say, like, oh, here's my research. But uh, in the background, he does share. He has given me some incredibly valuable documentation, a lot of stuff that I absolutely had no idea that it existed. And uh, this is the this is the beauty with Malcolm. Every time I meet him, and uh, I meet him maybe once or twice a year, and um, I read, of course, and listen to his uh, his material when he speaks with Alan Dale on uh, jfkconversations.com. And um, it's just incredibly interesting how someone like him basically spends a lot of time just going through the documents. And they're quite methodical and mechanical about it. They're, um, how do I say this? Like us at RPC go, go through the, uh, the existing evidence Whereas he's actually looking for, um, uh, for, we actually examine the existing evidence and go through it with a with a fine tooth with a toothpick. Whereas what he does is uh, he's going trying to, uh, I just say that visualize the mechanics of and the, and the mechanisms of of how the CIA is actually working their. Uh, 
how they write their reports, what sections, etc., etc., etc. So um, they're basically trying to put the the core of how that organization actually works together. And that by itself is a, is, is a massive job. Um, of course, um, uh, guys like um, uh, Bill Simpich, John Newman, uh, and Malcolm, of course, they all confer with each other in a very uh, collegial way. And um, they, I think they are probably the strongest force inside the uh, JFK research community and um, come up with, uh, with some really strong revelations that, you know, a lot of times just confirm what a lot of people were already thinking as such. But they are the ones that actually take the effort to go on into um, NARA, or, uh, which is the National Archives, or go to Dallas and go into archives over there or in Austin or in Tennessee or wherever the material is, um, is lying about as such. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I myself, I'm not really that up to date with what they're, what they're really going for, etc. But I'm always really, at the same time, Malcolm is very gracious. And um, when he finds something that uh, he knows that I'm interested in, and they, for instance, in the update that is coming up uh, of my interrogations papers, he's given me about, I think, about 15 pages worth of solid material of Forrest Sorrell's who is the lead Secret Service agent in uh, Dallas? So um, that uh, that's been of great help, and uh, he's also given me pointers and say go to that archive. Uh, he pointed me to, for instance, to an archive in Tennessee of Holland McCombs, who was a uh, journalist for um, uh, Dallas Morning News, but also for Time Life. And through that archive, I found a few bits on Roy Truly, Billy Lovelady from the TSBD, of course. But I also found uh, out that basically Holland McCombs was um, quite important in acquiring the films of the assassination. Um, of course, Time Life, everyone knows that Time Life uh, purchased the Zapruder film. But at the same time, they were as active of actually trying to get the DCA film, for instance, or pictures or anything that was related regarding dealing with Plaza and the assassination and such, they wanted to get their hands on. So I've just gotten hold of a lot of uh, contracts and correspondence between uh, Patsy Pascal and, you know, just all, you know, filmmakers that were basically around Dealey Plaza and such. This is another side project I'm actually working on. But anyway, getting back to the uh, conference, um, yeah, Malcolm is just an absolutely pleasure to talk to, and I hope I uh, get to talk to him again uh, in a year or so. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone uh, is going to enjoy this interview. It's just uh, under, under an hour. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, thank you again for this, Bart. And uh, everybody, if you want to check out first time Malcolm Blunt and, and Bart came on the show, um, I, I don't remember right offhand what show number it was, but like you said, I think it was two years ago. Yeah, it's not hard to find. It's called bluntly speaking, and I reckon this will be bluntly speaking part two. And he's one of those guys, like you said, who's always interesting, always bringing yeah. new stuff. And you know, he's yeah. one of these old school guys that likes to spend a lot of time actually in the archives with the documents and, and finding well, new stuff. He lived, he lived almost a year, just over a year in Dallas, and I think, I think he lived about six months in Washington, just next to the archives. Just got an apartment. 
and just started living next to the archives and just goes in there. And then the interviewer says himself, the collection is massive. I mean, yeah. people are talking about like five million pages. That's quite a lot of pages for, for, for a guy that supposedly shot the president, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I thought it was and, so uh, clear cut. So how comes we need five million pages to, uh, to explain yeah. that? And how come they're still holding on to a bunch of them, too? That's, yeah. that's another topic for another day. <laughs> yeah, Trump is a pussy, but yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and he likes grabbing out. it, too, so there's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it, it'll come out. I mean, uh, they've already, you know, they've already released there are some David, e., David Lee Phillips, David Atlee Phillips files, and uh, I've just read today that have been released, although there's still stuff redacted. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of it. FBI stuff. I've just been going through the files for the last couple of days. Um, there's loads of stuff. This just, but it's like a needle in a haystack because the problem is that nothing has been tagged. You see, this is my mate. Uh, the biggest grievance for me now, for the listeners, it's a really simple thing. When you look at the documents, you can click on the link and it will take you to the PDF. But when you look at the summarization pages, which have about I think about 50 odd documents on there. There is very little said. It just says from to and from. So it will say like Bellman yeah. to director of FBI. And other than that, you don't see anything. Now, if you compare that, for instance, with something really old, like that's been put together, like the Weisberg archive. Well, you just go in the search box and you just put right. it in there, any name, and it will go. It will show you all the documents that are related to that particular person or instance as such. You can't do that with the archive. Now, I'm thinking... My God, they've had this stuff for 25 years. And even if they started five years ago, yeah, and that was already the, the Weisberg archive was already online at that point. They could have taken the lead from that and make research a little bit easier because now you're looking at thousands and thousands of pages and you have to scroll through. And some of these documents are two, three hundred pages thick. And, yeah. the, the, and the funny thing is, as well, you go through the first 20 and you're looking at a subject, say, I don't know. FBI informants, right? And then you scroll down, and before you know it, you're in the middle of Cuba. And if you scroll down even further, you're in New Orleans all of a sudden. And it's like, hold on a minute, none of these three actually relate to each other, but yeah, they're all crammed into one file, and you have absolutely no idea what you're getting into. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just like, well, you get a file of 200 pages, you'll end up having to scroll through 200 pages to see where that's all related. And now, a couple of times, we found some nuggets, and they're, like, hidden, like, 130 pages deep. Whether that's done deliberately, that's another story. But it just doesn't make searching a really fun task, you know? Yeah. So I mean, some, you got to actually something that, yeah. open the PDF and, and actually go through it just to see what's in there. Yeah, and that's... yeah exactly. Now, that, that's, what, that's what these guys like Newman, and, and uh, Newman and, and he probably has a whole team uh, looking through it as such i'm not 100 sure but they have people that are basically just again with a with a toothpick just going through it all page after page after page and that's 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 how it works and it just resembles police work basic yeah. police work you have to yeah. go through it all and a lot of people in research aren't really up for that and nor do they have the time for that you know we all have lives jobs you know so it's 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 quite quite tough to go yeah. through very time very time consuming so you know yeah no so. doubt 
All right. Well, without further ado, let's get into your interview that you just had um, last weekend with Malcolm Blunt. And I hope everybody out there enjoys it. And uh, we got more coming for you next week from Bart. So, so everybody stay tuned. Um, you can check Bart out at prayer-man.com. And uh, you got the Dealey Plaza UK website handy? I do. But I'll tell you what, I always screw up with the URL. So, so do I. Just double <laughs> That's why check. I asked you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's dealeyplazauk.org.uk. There you go. For folks who want to follow along at home and keep tabs on what Bart's doing, yeah, prayer-man.com. Yes. And more to come from, uh, I believe you're working on some videos um, from this this past uh, conference, too, that are, yeah. are going to be coming. They yeah. will probably be all released by, I don't know, middle of next week, time permitting. Um, I have to, you know, render all of them. And, uh, yeah, I've released a few. My own one is already online at this point. Um, that went okay. I was hungover, but <laughs> it went all right. And Big shocker um, there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually me and Barry Keane that, uh, the night before, because um, the thing is, when we, uh, although those seminars on Saturday and Sunday, a, a lot, uh, about half of the people of the posse is actually already arriving at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday before, and the first thing we do is hit the pub. And uh, then uh, we all meet for a meal in the evening, and then actually the next day, um, the conference kicks off, but uh, Barry Keane and I basically uh, <clears throat> had a little bit too much to drink, and uh, <laughs> we woke up with a banging, raging hangover. And Barry actually was the opening speaker. Oh he no! Was doing a, <laughs> yeah, he was he was doing a piece on uh, Harold Skip Ryberg, who, uh, for those that don't know, he was the uh, illustrator of the wounds on Kennedy that were uh, used by the Warren Commission. So, you know, that really, that, that reddish drawing of um, Kennedy's head bending forwards and with that bullet uh, apparently going from the back through the front, etc. Right. Now, Barry did a piece on him about, I don't know, 12 years ago, and they've always been in touch. So he got all the original material sent by uh, Mr. Ryberg just before he passed away. So he got this massive box sent over. So, and I said to him, like, look, you need to do this. You need to do a piece on this. And he went, yeah. Oh, and he did. And it was really good. But it was tough because he was hungover. And I was straight after him. And I was hungover as well. And I had to do it for two hours. So, <laughs> oh, well. Lesson well, learned. Look, we, we can look forward to checking out your hungover video next week. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you, you do. So, but anyway, let's, let, uh, let's have Malcolm do the talking on this one. Um, I, uh, I think it's a, it's a really nice interview. It's, it's not as specific on documentation. So if you're looking for real specifics, it is more about Malcolm as a researcher and, uh, finding these documents as such and talking about it. Cool. Cool. Always interesting. So mm. here we go, everybody. Malcolm Blunt. All right. Uh, it was two years ago that, uh, we sat at this university and had a chat. And I thought uh, a few months back that it's time to uh, have another chat. Um, we've got quite a few bits to cover. I'll get to this later. Um, well, first of all, I saw a few videos of you with Alan Dale. And I spoke with Alan Dale uh, last night and a few weeks ago as well. Um, once he starts talking, you can't stop the man, that's for sure. 
Uh, <laughs> can you hear us all? Yeah? Yeah, all good? Okay, so well, they can hear you. Oh, okay, good. Oh, so it's boring. Um, my first question is that you said you uh, you read some books which you got fed up with as they all presented a different idea with regards to Kennedy assassination. Hmm, sure. Which books were they? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Plausible Denial. That was, uh, I think that was one of the first ones I read. Um, some of Weisberg's stuff I did get through early on. But um, I'm just trying <coughs> to remember what I did. Uh, Harry Livingston's book, uh, High Treason. Um, yeah, a few books. A okay. few books. And uh, as I say, uh, just uh, it was one of those things that you know you just suddenly think to yourself, I need to do something else. Yeah, know? that's what my next question, my follow-up question is basically, what was the spark or the trigger for you to say like, well, I'm gonna look at the documents instead. I've I've done this myself. Basically, uh, got to a point where I just went, I have to read a book, read 80% of what I already know, of already heard about, to find the. 10 or 20 percent that is actually yeah and i started where really you you're still working i started in in dealey plaza i lived i lived in dallas for over a year you know i managed to get a, i had a visa a long-term visa there and uh i had an apartment in the center of center of dallas uh, in commerce street the manor house apartments which is opposite the adolphus oh wow. so my local watering hole was the the Adolphus in the evening. I used to go across and there used to be a guy playing the piano and, uh, you know, you could sit there with a cuddle a drink all night, really. You didn't have to spend a fortune, you know. So. From that period, what can you remember what you discovered at that time or what was it like? I was just trying to play, play my way through it, you know. I, I, was, uh, I went to uh, City Hall um, and um, there was a girl called uh, Cindy Smolovic that was in charge of the Dallas police files there. And she was enormously helpful to me. Um, did a lot of copying and uh, it's just, you know, you, get, you meet some people that go the extra yard, mm -hmm. the extra five yards or whatever, you know, and she was one of, those, one of those girls. And I went through everything, went through all that stuff, all the, all the Dallas police stuff, all the statements, everything, all that stuff. And then I went out to, as you know, out to um, SMU, to right. De Gaulier, and tried to get into the Earl Cable Cabell stuff, <laughs> and, and met with a, you know, a, quite an unfriendly response there, really, out to, to SMU. They didn't, want, they, didn't, they didn't want to be bothered, really, at all. They were trying to fend people off, even back then, mm. you know. So. How long ago is this we're talking about? Uh, Mid-90s? 95. 95. Yeah, yeah. Was that research that you did then, was that for yourself, or were you doing it with John Armstrong, for instance? Or? No, um, I hadn't... I, I saw John's pr early presentations at one of the um, conferences, and it took me quite a while, actually, to uh, sort of get enough confidence to contact him, and I did. I, I, I had a phone number and I phoned him in Tulsa, and, uh, and then he he came up and he stayed at the apartment I had for a couple of days and then we sort of developed a friendship and ended up going I ended up going to 
the as you said, the National Archives. He practically lived there as well. Then. Practically lived there, yeah. I had an apartment there as well. So <laughs> that's probably the way to do it because you know it requires an enormous amount of time just to plough through documents the and actually the getting them. The collection, the collection is just ginormous. People don't realise how, how how large the Kennedy collection is at the National Archives. It is massive, 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 massive. You know. I was talking to somebody the other day, and we were talking about the FBI collection there. Just f for the bits that the House Select Committee looked at, there, there's a, you know, a group of FBI files which are called the HSCA subject files. They run way over 800 grey file boxes, over 800. And then if you go into the field office files, FBI files, you're talking thousands and thousands of boxes. You're not talking hundreds, you're talking thousands of boxes. So, so you're in heaven. I, I, went, I went through a lot of the field office files. Um, I went through the, a lot of the HSCA, back in the 90s, the HSCA subject files. And for those people that are looking online, I would I would say to look out definitely to look out for the HSCA subject anything that says FBI HSCA subject where there's been a redaction you know check that out because they're they're quite sensitive files you know the House Select Committee pushed the bureau into releasing stuff back then and some of the stuff uh, was obviously when it came out to the public was then redacted so I think that's a good that's a good collection to look at right. yeah any of that stuff. So you went to from Dallas to Washington, basically, and um, you ended up, well, started cooperating with John Armstrong. Sure. Harvey and Lee comes out. You don't, it was called Project Oswald at first, wasn't it? I don't think, I think it was a very loose title. I mean, it came to me, it must have been in, towards the latter end of 99 and said that you know he'd done he'd done with enough of the research and that he was going to write the book and the title of the book was going to be Harvey and Lee and I said well I don't like it you know I don't I didn't like the delineation between two individuals I, I always saw the Oswald thing as um, intelligence use of uh, the Oswald identity that's when I saw it and I still see it as that mm. although I think he's rock solid um, as regards to two individuals in New York, I, I can't get any other way around that. I've tried Bart, and I can't. Well, because because of the interviews we did with the, the those people that went to school with Oswald in, at Ridgely West. You know, if you talk to the, the, gr the girls, the ladies, there were girls back then, they all talk about Oswald as being a big kid at Ridgely West. And I, I gave one of those girls, one of those ladies, the Bronx Zoo photograph. Oh, the uh, one that with his massive in front nose. Of, in front of the zoo. And she looked at it and just went like that. And she took it over to two of her friends. And I could, I could look over and they were going like this. Yeah, just going, you know, no, it's not it's him. Not, it's not him. No, but, but that picture's got a massive problem anyway because he's got a nose the size of a fist on that particular <laughs> picture. I'm not kidding. You check out the Bronx Zoo picture, it's got a massive nose on it. It's just wrong. 
So, um, that's but also, if you go into, I mean, I interviewed Dorrit Wolf, who was his art teacher at junior high school 112, and uh, I don't think, it, maybe Lifton got to her, I'm not sure, but up until the time I'd spoken to her, nobody's ever spoken to her. And um, she tells a story of, uh, uh, a constant story, which I find, it, it flows through everything. The fact that the FBI did not do their, well, they did their job I in a certain way, you know. Um, she says that there were lots of people interviewed from junior high school, one, one, two, but you can't find it. You can't find that stuff when you look at the files. In other words, it's been pushed to one side, you know. And, sh and she says she wrote reams of, um, reams of letters to, uh, she was so concerned about Oswald, she wrote reams of letters to the social workers, right. you know, to try and get some attention on on this scrappy li little, little, with a hearing problem, little individual. You know, not youth house five foot two guy. This is a very small, undernourished, scrappy kid. Yeah. Which is not what the, the people in New York, Fort Worth, before right. the Oswalds left for New York, right. saw. They saw a different Lee Harvey Oswald, a big kid, or as the girls would say, a hunk. It's a hunk, you know, um, a big husky kid that they had a crush on. It's nothing like, nothing like this this scrappy little kid up in New York, in uh, in uh, junior high school, one one two. Right. So, so that, that, that I think is strong. Right. And the other strong one I, I found is, uh, although a lot of people will probably criticize me, is uh, um, the Palmer McBride stuff in New Orleans. You know, I knew Palmer very well. And um, we met quite a few times and uh, corresponded. And his timing of sort of October 57 through into the spring of 58 is, is rock solid because he bases everything on space exploration, stuff that was going on. He, c he can actually tie things together and dates together and stuff. And he, and he had a very good memory as well. So his dates are 57 and 58, which would be all well and good. You could say, oh, well, he's, uh, he's full of crap. And, uh, but there is, there is a, you know, a corroborating witness, or worse, and, and that was his best friend, James Harrison Vance. And I think I'm the only person that ever interviewed in the research community that ever interviewed Harry Vance, because the poor guy got terrified by the FBI. He he, he literally moved south to Mexico and set up in Tijuana. Wow. 1966. In 1966, his wife was having trouble with the INS, with the immigration, and he went down to his local immigration office and lost it, basically lost it. He went ranting and raving that he knew Lee Harvey Oswald and that he'd been a visitor to his mother's house and all the rest of it. And I, I tied Harry Vance down to dates. and. He was unsure on the first, which was when Palmer McBride moved his parents' house. That's when Vance stood in at the Fister's dental lab for Oswald, stood in for it that day. 
it was like, well, yeah, maybe. But the certain one was January the 31st, 1958. Oswald definitely came with McBride to his mother's house. That's a certainty. Right. He had that. He had that. And, you know, when I talked to him about it, the guy was, this is 1997, so way after 1966, he was still terrified, absolutely terrified. He said to me on the phone, you know, they shook me up really bad. They shook me up really bad. He had no argument with the Secret Service. They came to interview Vance as well about this. He thought they were gentlemen, but the FBI, boy, they gave him hell. They gave him absolute hell. Terrified him. Terrified. That's he, a really good he, he story. Died, he died the following year in July 1998. Yeah, yeah, he was teaching at a girls' school in uh, Tijuana. All right. So Quite a thing. He, he, he gave up in '66. He gave up a good job at um, NASA, Michoud. He was a very good physicist. Very good physicist. And he worked on the space program. Well, I'm on the internet a lot and I frequent forums. Education Forum is one of them. Deep Politics I used to be a member of. But on the Education Forum there's a lot of Harvey and Lee talk, so to speak. Right? I'm not into that. Well, I'm not either. I don't really respond to much of it. Um, his teeth are being brought I, I, up. I, 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 I think the book, you know, I, said, I say to our friend Alan Dale, you know, it's a case of throwing a baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good stuff in there is. In, in, in that book, yeah. including um, the, rifle you know, and the, the rifle and, and uh, Mexico City. He did yeah. a good job on Mexico City, and he's, he's done a lot of other good work. He's the Zeger sisters. I mean, he, he, he flew to South, John flew to South America to interview, to Buenos Aires, to interview uh, the Zeger sisters. He went to Switzerland and researched the hell out of the Albert, Albert Schweitzer stuff. He did a lot of great work, you know, but we disagreed. And well, you know the story. We didn't speak for a year, but um, you know we made it up. And we talked. Yeah, how'd you get back together? How did that happen? Well, we. He was the book by then had been published in in Dallas, and it was one you know when the conferences were coming around, and we just you know picked up. Just picked up. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. Right, I want to talk to but you. I mean, he's you know he's he's, he's you know. He's, he's got strong opinions, you know, and he's... Don't we he, all? He, he's, don't we? <laughs> yeah. he's not easily swayed, you know? He's, he's, he's convinced of his thesis and that's it. But, you know, yeah. I'm not, but, uh, you know, I, I, I did most of the document. well, I most of it. I did many of the, many, got many of the documents for that book. That's for sure. Yeah, what's your share in that then? Can you say, like, what, I did 40% of the book or 20% or...? For the documents? Yeah. Oh, more than 60. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a lot. Cool. Well, I'm going to talk about something else now. And it was a name that I hadn't heard before. Shows how diligent I am. Alan brought it up, and then I started looking into it, and there's very little about this person, yet you seem to know a little bit. And the person that we're talking about is Betsy Wolf. Oh, yeah. HSEA investigator. Mm. How do I see Betsy Wolf in relation to, say, Gate and Fawcett. Uh, she was a different type. She she worked on different stuff. You know, she was working on uh, um, the stuff I'm interested in. Really, was just like agency systems, organization, and stuff like that. And she looked at 
a lot of the um, officer security stuff, which I'm interested in and stuff like that. I mean, she she worked on she worked on a lot of different aspects to Gaten. Gaten was more a person um, investigator. He did, yeah, he did more individuals. Right. Um, where she was more into the organisational stuff. But it, but important nonetheless because it's where I got the the push for the um, you know the subverted dissemination of subverted dissemination the uh, the dissemination of um, the Oswald information that came into the CIA, which instead of going where it should have gone to the Soviet division, it got hijacked and sent to the security research staff of the Office of Security. Um, who were t very, very, very uh, close to Angleton's group, CI Sig. So, but it, I mean, that was a way of doing things. You see, because that avoided that avoided the opening of a two hundred one, which is that. That's a two. That's Oswald's two hundred one shoot. That's his. That's his front line. So. Because the offices of, of uh, security doesn't open two or ones, it has its own filing system. Right. It kept Oswald out of the the normal the more no, normal loop. You know, there was no um, the security office was never known to open two or ones. It only opened its own it had its own filing system. Right. And so the Oswald information was. Uh, kept out of the main, apart from one part of the, the central filing system, which was RID indexing. It may have been some information there. But that's where, you know, that's where I see a mole operating, you know. And the interesting thing is with, with the, the interesting thing with the, uh, with all that business, the Oswald defection, is that, uh, you know, um, Angleton, I think, was probably overseeing all all of that. I think I'm pretty sure. Right. Yeah. Quite a bold statement to make. Yeah, huh? I think so. Okay. Well, after 20 years digging through the documents, you're allowed. Um, what else about Bitsy Wolf is interesting because there's so very little of her on the internet. Nor is I've been told very hard to get a hold of and doesn't want to talk, does she? Yeah, that, uh, I asked. Um, uh, Jim Lazar about this a few years back and uh, Jim told me that she didn't want to speak to anybody and I've heard from other people exactly the same you know, you know she's done with it that was it yeah. that's the information I had but she did great work well obviously but there were a few good investigators a few good uh, HSC investigators uh, there were some good ones they right. really tried their best of course Blakey diverted a lot of people Diverted them to the the mafia side of it, mafia side of things. Uh, tried to, and didn't 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 put enough emphasis on CIA. You know, didn't they they, they got a pass from Blakey, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, awful security files. Mm. Is that part of it? No, that's a two or one file. Right. So what are the security files? Security files at NARA. Right. Uh, also, security files at NARA. Um, and they started out uh, as a, in the 70s, they were 
when they reached the House Select Committee, they were a seven-volume set. And by the time they got to the review board, they were a six-volume set. So there was one volume missing, which was volume five. Yeah. What's the story behind this? Because I've read a few bits about it, but can you jog my memory or everyone else's? It just disappeared. Others have read it, haven't they? The, the volume five such. Yeah, the, the, the liaison, the legal, the, the OLC guy, the legislative council guy was Scott Breckenridge. And Breckenridge is on, the, is on a book slip. He actually writes on a book slip um, that Betsy Wolf looked at one, two, three, and four, and half of volume five. And she did not look at volume six or seven. So the whole seven volumes were present during the House Select Committee. And then when Russ Holmes looked later, I think in the 80s, 1983, he checked seven volumes in and seven volumes out. And that's, he wrote that down, that's all down now. So it's all checkable. And when I, I wrote that, that short piece for the AARC on, it, uh, on the missing volume, I was not expected, but I was hoping, in a way, for a CIA to come back and come up with some explanation, but they never came back. Because there is no explanation. Yeah. Besides the text. It, it went. Yeah. <laughs> it went. Right. But it's difficult to understand why, because they showed, you know, they showed those volumes to the church committee, and they showed those volumes to the House Select Committee. And yet it turns up in to the review board with volume five missing. I, it's hard to get the logic. Unless something, they discovered something in there which uh, made it necessary to get rid of the whole volume, the whole volume, yeah. in, instead of maybe one or two documents. Because they, you know, it runs in a chrono chronology. It runs in Wow. Strange stuff. Yeah, well, you get exposed to that strange stuff a lot because, like, well, two years ago, the, uh, we discussed the uh, 50 Marine bodies' uh, testimonies and stuff like that that mm. you've been trying to get hold of and uh, mm. disappear as such. Do you encounter this a lot? I mean, I only deal with NARA maybe once or twice a year, but... I think, that, you know, for me, they're one of the... One of the things that irritated me most was the fact that the U.S. Attorney's Office sent up four large boxes in 1965, April 1965. There's a document with an I told you with an accession number on, which means it's it's logged in. It's always supposed to be found, and yet those boxes have disappeared. And the stuff that came up from the U.S. Attorney's Office was fragments of testimony of witnesses that testified in Dallas. So uh, um, we, we've got some of it left. Um, they're, they're in um, record group 118 of the uh, US Attorney's Office in Dallas files. So and when you look in there, there's fragments of um, Ruth Payne's, some of the stuff that's been e excluded from Ruth Payne's interview uh, testimony. And, and other people, I, I can't remember exactly. Oh, I think it was some of the white Russians, George Bouhey stuff is in there, a few pages. And um, 
it's a, it's a sad thing when you get boxes of stuff sent up. Yeah. By some miracle, it survived Dallas, came up to the National Archives, and now you can't find it. And they can't find it. Mike would know this. Even though they've got an accession number, they still can't find it. I mean, that's a holy grail. You know, they can't find it. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen all that testimony, especially <laughs> stuff from Dallas, what has been said as such. Well, I told you earlier as well, we tried to get hold of Roy Truly's deleted testimony. That's how it was published at the NARA website. All of a sudden, we were going through audio recordings, me and Dennis Morissette, and all of a sudden, we said, look at this. And it said, Roy Truly's deleted testimony. I thought, cool, let's go and get this. <coughs> we had a lot of trouble with NARA trying to get it. They wouldn't do it. And Dennis Morissette tried a year later, which was like late last year, about September, I think. He paid about almost a hundred bucks for it. And in the end, we got some guy basically reciting Roy Truly's <laughs> testimony as such. And he went through it really rapidly as such. And it's about, I don't know, half an hour tape or so. And I think he put it online on YouTube as well. And you basically hear, hear this guy just reciting it. That is Roy Truly's deleted testimony. Uh, same with... The polygraph of Frazier, I got the same thing. We thought we had the files, blah, 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 and I got 30 pages back. And all of this is basically agencies talking to each other, trying to find the so-called polygraph, whereas the DPD just goes, no, we send it up uh, to Washington. We send everything up and so forth, blah, blah, blah. Well, the thing that, the thing that I mean, you know, there's so many things that have upset me over the years, but I think the worst thing was actually tracking down um, Gaten Ponzi's tape with Mitch Werbel you know, from 1977, I think. It's 1977. And get into the National Archives and finding that there is a reference copy available that you could actually listen to. And then when you go there, they say, oh no, we can't find it. We can't find it. So every year I would go back and, and keep asking the same question. And then I would write to them. I'd write to the, the guy that runs motion picture and audio, Mark Meader, any sign of it? <coughs> he found it. No, 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 go away, you know, he's not going to find it. In 2012, I think it was, or 2013, I'd go to the shelves in the audio department at the National Archives, and there, there's the, the, the disc, the Mitch Werbel disc. So I'm very excited, and I'd push them on, to listen to them, and all there is is white noise, white noise, Static. and more white noise. Four and a half hours of white noise. Well, that's not, no, that's not accidental. That's not accidental. No, that's that's a suppression. And we know, we know. I mean, they tried to explain it to me. I had letters, emails, and they say, "Oh well." It's you know, it could have been Gate and Fonzie not, not doing his taping properly, blah, 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 blah. But there's a tape counter, a seven-page tape, tape counter. So you get, you know, you get fragments of, the, of, of it, you know, little headlines of the verbal conversation with, with Gate and Fonzie. Seven pages of it. So detail. Those, yeah, seven pages of detail. So, you know, those tapes were operational you could actually listen to those tapes somebody somewhere has white noise those tapes now where did that happen did it happen at nara 
or did they send it back to CIA who were ho horrified at what Wurzel was blabbing on about, you know, because he was soused that day and he talked a lot about CIA proprietary companies. I know that, you know, stuff he should never have talked about, he talked about. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, too many whiskeys. <laughs> Speaking of which, you just mentioned that CIA proprietary companies. Um, in our chats last year and the year before, uh, the one that we did, you basically said that, um, if I remember this correctly, the information that's supposed to come out and so forth in the documents from last year, July till now, this week, that these documents would actually give, give the game away with regards to these so-called companies. You remember? Yeah. I, well, I th what I think is, uh, you know, you know it's, it's an area where they that could be, they can could still be kicked along the road by Trump. I'm not sure. I mean, from what I understand, is some stuff is being still being withheld until 2021. So, and I'm sure that's got a lot to do with companies, corporations, proprietaries, you name it, because the, the tentacles go so so far yeah. and so wide. And into so many different areas. Have you have you gone through the stuff that's been released since? No, I haven't. No, no, no. Oh I've, I got, have. I've got people looking. People looking. Oh yeah. Well, I thought it was a lot of rubbish. There's so much no. rubbish around. I mean, for me, for my subject matter as such, a lot is hidden. I mean, there's a lot on uh, what I read through. I didn't really look through the CIA files because my interest isn't really there. But my uh, the FBI well, files. Well, everybody should look out for below the watch. You know, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Know, Below watch company, watch, yeah. You know, at, at the, the the Robert Kennedy yeah. thing, you know, the, the Ambassador Hotel. Ambassador that's Hotel. where they were, and they're a cover company. So anything to do with Below the Watch, we should be looking for. You know, oh. definitely be that looking for Below the Watch. Yeah, yeah. Because I did fifty nine, and that's when Below the was in Moscow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then, you know, and, and some of these. Um, Cover companies that uh, the agency can make it, CIA can make a case because you know they're long lived, they have a long shelf life. You know, Belova Watch is was probably may, may still be operational in some sense. You know, mm. it's only because there was a screw up on that one. I think I sent you the document, there's a screw up on that one document yeah. because of where it comes from. It comes from the uh, commercial cover division, it says at the top CC. So you know, and then when you look at, so you know you know it's a cover company. It's yeah. come from that's where it's come from. Yeah. What I found with the documents was that there is you find one thing that is of real interest or value to what you're doing, but for every document that you find, I've got a hundred or two hundred to go through basically. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of that. It's going to be a long slog. The indexing it's is an absolute joke because the Weisberg archive, for instance, if I compare it with that. The Weisberg archive is really simple. You put a search term in and it goes through all the documents as such. You can't do that at NARA because they haven't written a summarization or put any tags on it, let alone a lot of documents have no date on it right either. You just go through the list and all you see is a lot of zeros for the date. You don't see anything. You might see like it comes from the director or deputy director and then there's nothing. So you have to open the document, actually read the whole document mm. basically to find out. Mm. And I'm thinking, what have you not been doing for the last 25 years <laughs> at the archives for putting this together so shoddily? Because 
if someone like the Weisberg Archive can put the search system together where every document is basically being picked up with mm. the words and so mm. forth, mm. why the heck didn't they do that mm. at now as such? Yeah, good question. So, let's talk about this document. This one, yeah. Of yeah. Course, right. yeah, yeah. This is the, uh, this is Adam Oswald's 201 file. This is, um, you get this as a, normally as a, a very washed out, washed out sort of photocopy. And that's his cover sheet. But underneath is the, is the clip. That's the like juice. Some, some white, some yellow tissue paper, which is clipped to this. And, and basically what it tells us is Soviet Russia counterintelligence did not have the Oswald information in 59. So that it confirms the fact that they were cut out of the original dissemination. And you have to ask yourself, why were they cut out of the original dissemination? You know, Why were they cut out of the original dissemination? Because it, I think the Oswald thing was a, was a mole hunt. That's what I think. Yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. There's no, there's no other reason. There's no other reason, you know? That dissemination took a right turn to the security office. That bit which was connected to Angleton's SIG. And um, if you look at the defectors before Oswald, Webster and all that. Webster, uh, Riccardelli, and you look at the defectors after. You look at those files and you look at the dissemination. Everything went a different way. It went into the normal channels, which is it went to the Russia division. It went to the domestic contact division. Security office, sure. And the counterintelligence staff, and including SIG, in some cases. But you didn't, get, you didn't get a subverted dissemination, as in Oswald's case. You didn't get the Soviet Russia division cut out. There's no breakout in the Soviet Russia division for the Oswald information. The earliest breakout is, is May 1960. And then there's a, there's a cover sheet which tells us that it was in SR9, which is the operations division, Soviet, operation, Soviet internal operations division. When you when you talk about some of these divisions and the, or these branches, there were only ten people in the Soviet Russia operational branch. Just ten people. That's all. They're quite small. Some of them are quite quite small. And Soviet Russia counterintelligence was about twenty-five. The biggest one was um, SR10, which is the Legal Travelers Program. There's probably about a hundred people in that one. It was a much bigger, much bigger. From the documents that were released last year, one thing came forward, or actually confirmed it, is that Oswald was actually monitored by the CIA pretty heavily, isn't it? I mean, uh, over the years, this document shows. Oh, God. Yeah? I mean, the level, what, what's the level of actually, like, watching Oswald, and especially in 63? Do you, what do you know about that? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I only know that the, 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 the they definitely had a, a, a deep interest in Oswald, yeah. And uh, if you look at that dissemination, that's understandable. They would have to have a deep or deeper interest in Oswald. I mean, it was probably, 
I think there were loops within loops. I think there was quite a small loop that were in on the original interest in Osgood. Yeah. I think there was. But somebody, somebody was talking about Hoover, Hoover's interest. I mean, Hoover knew a lot about Osgood, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, because of that memo about the uh, Yeah, because the of the memo, but also because of the speed, the speed of response after the assassination. He went, he was able, his boys were able to go everywhere very quickly and pick up... Yeah, um, school records and Pick so up forth. school records and pick up INS records and, you know. It, it, in, in a sense, they... Interesting for me watching a guy called uh, Chester Bolley, sent, sent down by the security research staff of the office of security down to New Orleans straight away to pick up stuff. And everywhere he went, the FBI beat him to it. <laughs> Every single place. The first place, uh, but the first, the interesting bit is the first agency he went to to pick up records was INS which gets back to you know the INS interest in the record uh, the tax records in, in yeah in 63 in in New Orleans where clearly there was a a, um, a use of INS people as cutouts by by the agency with Oswald because all their stuff has disappeared from the church committee all that all their stuff all their testimony you can only see it in the drafts. When you look at the the the, uh, the draft church committee files, you look down in the footnotes, and it says um, testimony of INS inspector, blah blah blah. Gives a date and all the rest of it. Thirty-six pages, gone. We we don't have it. It's all gone. It's all gone. Yeah, that's my experience with the documents being released because you see the header. And it says what the subject is, and then it says it's 26 pages, and then I'm at the bottom of the page, and it's like, yeah, well, there's 26 yeah. pages. And it's worse, with, it's worse with U.S. Customs as well. You know, the, the U.S. Customs uh, guy that was clearly involved with Oswald called Dave Smith, and uh, he got transferred out to get transferred out to California or somewhere, I think. But um, the Department of Justice, when when these people testified, they all had to go to the Department of Justice and give um, after-action reports. All those had disappeared as well. You can't find those. You can find <coughs> you can find a single page which says they were interviewed, and that's it. That's it. You can't find the guts of their interviews. It's gone. Yeah. Don't tell me there's nothing going on in New Orleans. No. There's something big going on in New Orleans in '63. Otherwise, why all the shell games? Why is the stuff disappearing? Why, why is U.S. Customs uh, stuff disappearing? INS stuff disappearing? Their testimony to the church committee's gone. You know, this is. And then even when you go to justice for the after-action stuff, in other words, they go to there and tell, make a statement to DOJ DOJ people about their testimony. That's gone as well. It's ridiculous. I mean, so Morley, Jeff Morley is on to, definitely onto something with Joe and Edis in yeah. New Orleans. Yeah, he's yeah. been doing that for youngs yeah. already. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, 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 uh, Oswald and um, Oswald in New Orleans is and the DRE and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah the DRE thing. You asked me about uh, was uh, Bringer 
a paymaster yeah. and I was answering a different question but I don't think he was a, a paymaster for right. DRE but I think he was definitely a CIA connected guy because when you look at I looked at the Miami files the FBI Miami files and it's just a constant push in coming from New Orleans all the time from Bringer from Bringer to smear Oswald in the aftermath of the assassination really? it's coming in all the cables and it's not just um, Luis Fernandez or Russia or uh, uh, Salvat other people as well that they talk to, the FBI talk to. Everything is coming from Bringer. This big push to make sure Oswald gets smeared in immediately after the assassination. You know. and, and, and people tend to point, point their finger at the DRE for that, but it's not, it's Bringer. It's Bringer. All right, well, that's interesting because, see, I remember the people pointed to the fact that. Didn't the well, DRE goes, newspaper they, was the first one to publish? That's uh, right, it all comes out, but the source is Bringer, always. The original source for all that material is Bringer, he's really pushing it. In, in fact, you get you get people like you know, Salvat saying in the in, to the FBI, you know, they don't know anything, They're, all their information is coming from Bringer. I mean, I could have those documents, it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Jeff Morley, um, I've been following a few bits of him recently because of that court case and such. And he also made mention of that, um, if I remember correctly, that Oswald was on a sort of a list. I forgot what the name of the list is. And he basically got taken off twice. Watch the watch list. Do you know anything about this? Oh, I heard that he was taken off the watch list. I'm trying to think who it was. <sighs> it's on the tip of my tongue. It's gone. Yeah, I know. I that know, happens I, a lot. I know you mean. Well. Yeah, yeah, I know you mean. But yeah, th I mean that guy's actions look very extremely suspicious. Yeah. Oh, it's, there are no reasons mentioned why he's being yeah. taken off and being put on again. No, exactly. Yeah. It, well, he was on and then he was off, wasn't he? I don't think he was off and back on again. Was right. I thought it was the other way around. I have to reread it, but yeah. I, I think he was taken off twice of the list, if I remember correctly. But then yeah. I may be dead wrong. Marvin Geeser. That's it. <laughs> so they came. <laughs> yeah. Right. Does anyone else uh, have a question for Malcolm? Not all at once, right? <laughs> Come on. Do your best. Yes. Go for it. I sometimes think it's more sophisticated. I remember looking at, um, when I was looking through some FBI files once, and I think it was, uh, I'm trying to think which field office I was looking at. I think it could have been the Houston field office. And in 1981, somebody put a small advertisement in a, in a, a Houston newspaper for photographs and films of the assassination. And it was no bigger than my fingernail. And the FBI picked that up. So when you talk about monitoring of the case, 
how closely in a tiny, tiny advert in one newspaper, no bigger than my fingernail. That's how much interest all those years later they had. So yeah, you know, you bet they're interested. Uh, and when it comes to crucial testimony, you know, like the INS people and the US Customs people in New Orleans, who had to tell a different story, that story is uh, suppressed. That's right. They co-opted US Customs Office. They CIA admitted with Cesar Diosdado down in the Keys in, in Florida. They, he was a co-opted customs officer. He was uh, working for CIA, and then CIA reimbursed US Customs his salary. But he worked with, um, worked with the CIA for close on six years. And obviously down in New Orleans, would they be doing the same thing at that port city? Of course, of course. You know? My final, uh, I just want to discuss one thing. When I said to Alan yesterday, I said, how many times have you met Malcolm in the last two years? He said six times. Is that right? Well, that's what he said. <laughs> What have you been doing those six times? Where have you, where have you been? Now, obviously, you've been to Washington but, um, and Dallas, but where have you been actually uh, up to? Well, last time, I was uh, briefly, only br as you know, only briefly in Washington. I went to the Kennedy Library for two and a half weeks. So I was looking at, um, I was looking at the files of um, JFK's Comptroller of Currency, James Saxon. I've looked at his files. It's the second time I've looked, and uh, I, I continue to be interested in what Kennedy was trying to do with the banking industry in uh, in America. What was he trying to do? Uh, major reforms. Yeah? Yeah, major reforms. Using his own guy. Uh, the Comptroller of Currency was a, was a dead and buried arm of government and resurrected really by uh, Kennedy. And uh, he wanted to... Um, he wanted to uh, have his own uh, monetary policy, you know. He wanted to be able to Im increase the money supply, and he was it, to do that. You would have to take the control of national banks away from the Fed, from the Federal Reserve, and the only way he could do that was by using the Comptroller's Office, which was part of Treasury. Right. So he could take uh, retake control. That's I think 4,300 4, banks in America. It's, it's quite a big thing, quite a big thing. And he would not have been very popular with the Federal Reserve. Obviously. No, he would not be popular. And I was also looking at, um, thanks to Jim DiGinio, uh, I was looking at uh, Kennedy's um, Israel policy yeah. in 63. And I found that fascinating, you know, the, all the stuff on Demona. Uh, that was that was very interesting. Um, what else did I look at? I looked at quite and just general stuff. I looked at uh, um, Ted Clifton's files. Uh, Who's that? It was General Clifton. He was one of the White House advisors to Kennedy. Right. Yeah. And uh, Mac Bundy's files, McGeorge Bundy's files. He's an interesting character. Very, very. But he gets he, he gets the rap for quite a few things. I mean, I remember the first thing I read about it was uh, more than I, 20 I, years I, ago. I, I sort of changed 
yeah. when, I, when I looked at what he, what he was doing and how, how close he was to Kennedy. Because he apparently made the phone call that there were no airstrikes to be done on Cuba. That, I, mean, I, read that's that. a I read that too. <laughs> yeah, he got the credit for that, basically. That yeah, he that. was the one I responsible. Read that. I read that, yeah. But, you know, when you see his day-to-day -day, uh, working with JFK, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And when you see how voracious Kennedy was, I mean, he was a voracious reader, you know. And every, every weekend, um, MacBuddy would give him a reading list, you know, a reading list of... Not only not only of books, of articles, and then of, of stuff that he should, that Kennedy should read. It was like pages. JFK was absolutely an amazing guy. Absolutely, he, he was permanently inquisitive. He wanted to know everything. You know, he really did. He was just. I mean, what a president we lost. Really, when you go through those files, it's an education really is. If you get a chance to go to the Kennedy Library, just go. You can hook out any files. I would look out the Mac Bundy files for a great um, sense of uh, how JFK operated. Great files. Some of it you can, yeah. Some of it you can. A lot of it is, is, is still waiting to be Digitized, yeah. You know, but I belong to the Stone Age. You know, I prefer paper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, thank you very much. do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. At Farmers Insurance, we have concrete evidence that parking under an industrial cement mixer, that's just asking for trouble. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum.
Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.